Of all the parts of the Christmas story, the one I find most intriguing and interesting is that of the shepherds, the passage that Dave read to us. For a number of reasons, and actually a number of questions that, are, that come up as we think about the shepherds. First of all, the first question that comes to mind is, why them? Why did the angels appear to them? Is it because they were nearby? If you remember what Dave read, they were nearby in the fields. I don't think that that's why. Because what Zib read to us, it was a time of the census. And all those of the house of David, of the line of David, were in Bethlehem to be registered. I think you have some pretty impressive people who are from the house of David. Um, you know, people who had reputations, those who were well-known, who had social standing, who had influence. Um, yeah, I, I think I would have chosen one of them or a group of them rather than a group of shepherds who are out in the field. And part of the reason I say that is because in Jewish culture in the first century, shepherds were not allowed to give testimony in court. They were considered so untrustworthy that you couldn't believe them, that whatever they said would be perjury. Same with tax collectors. They're put in that category. And yet, the Lord chose to send his angel to them to make the announcement, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel of praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. Certainly an impressive appearance. One might wish for a better audience. But wait a minute, what's wrong with being a shepherd? Okay, the culture may say we can't trust these guys, but Bethlehem, the town of David, what was David before he became a leader? He was a shepherd. So there's a certain symmetry that in fact the message comes to these men who are in the field. We need to be careful how we think of shepherds. The second thing is, the second question is how did they respond? When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. And so they hurried off. It doesn't appear that there was any hesitation on their part. Um, let's go to Bethlehem. Let's do this. We've heard about this. We need to go and see if it's there. See what the, not, not see if it's there, to see what is there, what we have been told. Um, I couldn't help but wonder as I was preparing this, you know, if an angel of the Lord appeared to us right now, I mean, wouldn't we have questions? Wouldn't we say, okay, did we have a hallucination? Did that really happen? Um, you know, maybe it was, you know, maybe it was that extra spicy food I had last night, you know, that I'm, I'm seeing things. We don't hear this at all from these men who are considered incapable of telling the truth. They recognize the truth when they see it, and they go, the King James has it, as well as the ESV, with haste. They don't hesitate. 
they go with haste. The third question is, what did they find when they got to Bethlehem? They found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And I want you to think about this. They found a real baby, okay, lying in the manger the way that the angel had said. Not the idea of a baby, not some mystical experience of a baby. Here is a newborn infant who makes noises, who cries, who is helpless, who needs to be fed, who needs to be changed. There's something else. This is a baby without any special manifestations. I don't know if you saw it or heard it in the carols that we sang. They they talk about radiant light. And if you look at the paintings of the infant or even statues, images, there's a halo, there's this special light. I would say none of that was true. This is a baby who is lying in a manger. There's nothing that would distinguish him physically from any other baby, any newborn infant. And the same is true of Mary and Joseph. They didn't have halos. There's this young couple, and there's a baby in the manger, which is a trough that you put the feed for animals. They had to stay in a stable because there was no room. All these people of the line of David had come to Bethlehem to be registered in the census. There were things unique about this child born of a virgin. These are things they could not see. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Again, something they could not see. But they were told that a Savior is born, born to you. He is Christ the Lord. One might well ask, how can this be? But it appears that the shepherds didn't ask these questions. They are content to be told and then to act on what they have been told. And then, after they see the child, which is exactly the way the angel explained it to them, they spread the word. They tell everyone what they had heard. And the people who heard it were amazed. They were amazed. Here are these shepherds whom I would not... I could not use as a witness in court, and they are telling me these pretty much unbelievable things. An angel appeared to them, the heavenly host. There's a baby that they were told about. But they told everyone they could. And what happened to the shepherds, by the way? What happens afterwards? They went back to work. Their lives continue. But there's a difference now. We are told that they are glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. All these centuries later, we still have questions, and many have doubts, many are skeptical. But perhaps we should ask and try to answer some questions. Why did the Son of God come into the world in this way, as a helpless infant? Some might even ask, why did he come at all? Did he have to come? I want to propose some things for you to think about this Christmas season. First of all, he came to reveal the nature of the Father. We are told in John's Gospel, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, 
who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then we near the end of his life, before his crucifixion, Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you for such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? And then at the beginning of Hebrews, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. It seems correct to argue that when we look at the life of Jesus and what he says and what he does, this is in fact what God the Father would say and do. I would suggest though that perhaps we should also look at it from the other angle, that what the Father says and does is what Jesus did and what he said. The Father revealed himself in Jesus, and that's why he came. He came to redeem humanity. Oscar read to us, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived of her is from the Holy Spirit. Stop him. This is, this is in a dream. This is a case of, boy, did I have too much spice in the meal last night. But he believes what the angel tells him. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. This is probably the first thing we think of when someone asks, why did Jesus come into the world? He came as a savior. He came to save us. A savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. But did the, did the shepherds think in terms of, oh, he's going to save us from our sins? Joseph is told that. The shepherds are not. Are they thinking of something else? Maybe get rid of the Romans. Maybe we can get better job opportunities. He will save us from this life of being shepherds. One might say they had an incomplete picture. (laughs) I would argue we do as well. Jesus also came to redeem creation. A passage in Romans 8, the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. By the way, I misread that that creation groans as in the pains of childbirth. We read this last week in Isaiah 65. Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. This is redemption. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. And we hear this in the New Testament as well. After Jesus came into the world and then ascended, he returned to the Father. 
But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. And then the next to the last chapter of the Bible in Revelation 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. This is something we've looked at before. But many, many times when people think of salvation or redemption, they think basically it means saying something, getting your ticket punched, and then when you die, you get to go to heaven. And when it comes to creation, the world, we think of this as the stage. This is where we live. This is where God saves us. But you know, when we die, we're out of here, and we get to go to heaven. Um, without realizing it, we are dabbling, we're getting pretty close to the line of an ancient heresy known as Gnosticism. The Gnostics believe that there were two aspects to reality, the spiritual, which is good, and the material, matter, which is evil. And for them, matter could not be redeemed because it has always been evil. It isn't as though when God created the world and he saw that it was very good, Apparently the Gnostics had not read Genesis 1. Um, they're like, no. The things you can see, the material things, this has always been evil. This will not be redeemed. Only the spiritual is truly good. Which some of the Gnostics then said, you know, Jesus didn't actually have a body. There was, a, there was this man named Jesus walking around and one day the Christ spirit came on him and then when he was on the cross, he said, why have you abandoned me? It's because the Christ spirit left him. No, this is God's creation. It is full of wonder, and God saw that it was very good. God made our bodies. He declared them good as he did his creation. By the way, we've just had communion. and In communion, we think of what Jesus has done for us. We proclaim his death until he comes. And then what do we do? We eat something and we drink something. We partake in God's creation. If we think of redemption only as our spirits, you know, our bodies are going to die and then our spirits will go to heaven and then everything will be wonderful, uh, we should remember that Jesus came in a body. Jesus died in a body and was resurrected with a body. That our salvation involves not only our spirits, but our bodies as well. Otherwise, what's the resurrection about? We don't need to be resurrected if it's just our spirits going to heaven. The Word, in the beginning was the Word, became flesh. And he lived among us. Why did Jesus come? I think the supreme reason is because of his love, the love of the Father. Perhaps the first verse that many of you memorize as children is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son. That Jesus coming into the world demonstrated a tangible and personal it's evidence that in fact God loves his world and his creation that love is seen in Jesus coming into the world. Soren Kierkegaard, who is a Danish philosopher in the 19th century, uh, 
had a parable to try to illustrate what it meant that Jesus came into the world. It was the story of a king who fell in love with a young maiden, but he didn't know how he should express this love. After all, he's the king and she's a peasant girl. Um, How is this ever going to work out? If he came to her as king, because she didn't, apparently she didn't know he was king. If he came to her as king, she would feel like, oh, I'm not worthy, you're so high, I'm just a peasant girl, this is not going to work out. Um, he could, in fact, say, no, you're no longer a peasant, I'll raise you to the status, and you can be of the royal family. But he said that would be deceptive and contrary to his nature. And then he said, but the king could do the opposite. He could, in fact, appear to her as a fellow peasant. But then this would run into the same problem because he's not a peasant, he's the king. He then applied this to this parable to God's relationship with us. God, therefore, must appear in the form of a servant. But this servant's form is not merely something he put on like a beggar's cloth or cloak, which is because it is only a cloak, flutters loosely and betrays the king. No, it is his true form. For this is the unfathomable nature of boundless love, that it desires to be equal with the beloved, not in jest, but in truth. Paul wrote about this in Philippians 2, and perhaps this is what Kierkegaard had in mind who being in the form of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being made in human likeness. We studied this when we went through Philippians. In Greek, in the New Testament, there are two different words that are used for form. Uh, Morphe is a form, and it doesn't change. And so Jesus is God, Morphe, and that does not change. But then the second word is that of schema, And that is a form which changes from time to time. And this is part of what it means to be human. So we come as infants and then babies, toddlers, preteen, teenager, young adult, and on it goes. So that form of us changes. Nothing can take away our morphe, if you wish. We are always human. We will always be human. Whatever our deficiencies disease or deterioration or disfigurement, we're still human. We have the form of being human beings. Christ, even as he comes to earth, has the reality that he is God. He took on the form of a servant. You're like, oh, I get it. This is the schema part. No, it's not. He took on the form of a servant. This is not some illusion, as Kierkegaard said. This isn't some cloak he puts on. He actually took the form of a servant. He was made in human flesh. That's the schema. So he comes as an infant and then grows as a young boy, teenager, a young adult, and he begins his earthly ministry. It was his love and that of the Father that led him to humble himself. But there is something else perhaps we should consider. Why does Paul speak of 
Jesus humbling himself, Christ humbling himself, coming as a human being. Augustine wrote this, that when a man thinks he is God, this necessarily, Jesus coming in the flesh, precludes any encounter with the true God, creative men. The incarnation disproves this in the most profound way imaginable. The ultimate humiliation of God is coming in the flesh. It not only radically puts us into place, but it overturns holy, simplistic views of what it means to be God. Human beings think we think more of ourselves perhaps than we should. Uh, Jesus humbled himself to become a human being. Um, that should tell us something. That should, in God's grace, put us in our place. Now I'm going to get on thin ice here, but be with me. Pull me back if I fall in. Theologians like to deal with speculation. And the question has been asked, what if Adam and Eve had never sinned? Would Jesus still come into the world? Would he still be born as a child, as an infant, and grow up and live among human beings? It's always dangerous when you ask questions like this. What if there had never been a fall? See, because we see the coming of Jesus in a fallen world. It's a rescue mission to rescue us from our sins and to save creation, to redeem creation. But what if Adam and Eve had not sinned? By the way, not just Adam and Eve, but any of their descendants as well. I would argue that Jesus would still come into the world. The incarnation would still happen. One might say, well, why? He doesn't have to rescue us from anything. Why would he come into the world? Again, I would speculate, but let me suggest to you. First of all, it would be to establish the necessity of grace. Grace is unmerited favor. It is God's favor which we do not deserve. And I would suggest to you that even without sin, we need God's grace. It's not as though we never sin or like, well, we're good, don't need any grace, we've got it covered. Even if we were without sin, we would require divine grace. We don't have to sin in order to need grace, okay? We don't need to sin in order to receive grace. It is God's unmerited divine favor. And in that light, Jesus would come into the world. That incarnation would still be an act of grace. That God would come in human form as a helpless child and live among us full of grace and truth. Yeah, it would in fact be God's grace. So either in a fallen world or in a perfect world, Jesus would still come into the world as a child. Secondly, I would say that he would come into the world because it would demonstrate the wonder of being human. 
I just said that he humbled himself. Okay, this is in a fallen world. He humbles himself and comes into the world. That being human is in fact something wonderful. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands and, everything, and put everything under his feet. I think Jesus would have come into the world to tell us that being human is truly significant. I don't mean to be blasphemous in any way, but he didn't come as an, an animal or as a tree or something else in creation. He comes as those who are made in his image. And even if we had not sinned, we would need grace. And perhaps we would need to be reminded of the wonder of what it means to be human. I think it would also give testimony to the wonder and beauty of creation. Somehow we always forget the creation story that when God was finished, he saw his creation and saw that it was very good. Jesus would come into a world and, in a sense, just show the wonder of his creation. But lastly, I think that he would come into the world to show that, in fact, he is Lord over all creation. Christ is the one through whom and for whom all things were created and in whom all things hold together. In whom all things in creation have coherence, and intelligibility. Apart from him, this doesn't work. This doesn't hold together. In a few minutes, we're going to sing our final hymn, Joy to the World, one that is 300 years old. Isaac Watts in 1719 wrote this, and it's based on Psalm 98. It actually is not a Christmas carol. He did not write it as a Christmas carol. The story behind it, if you look at Psalm 98, is what will the world become with the new heaven and the new earth? We've seen in our series the last few weeks that we are between the two advents. The first advent before Jesus came, Jesus has come into the world, he's returned to the Father, but one day he will come back again. And what will that be like after he comes back? That's what joy to the world is about. But as we live between the two advents, and again, perhaps it might have been better if I'd preached this sermon at the beginning before we sang all these Christmas carols, go back and review. A number of them speak not so much of the first advent, but the second advent, that one day he will return. We'll sing it in a few minutes, but just to remind you of the lyrics, Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. He is king. Let every heart prepare him room. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let all their songs employ. And then he rules the earth with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. Jesus has come into the world. He will one day return.
and we who live between those two events, like the shepherds, are to praise God and glorify Him for what He has done and for what He will do. Let's pray together. Our Father, this time of the year, we are reminded in a powerful way of your love by sending your Son, and of his love by willing to humble himself, to take on the form of a servant. It is beyond our comprehension how the one who holds the world together came as a helpless babe, one who was dependent on others for everything. when we, in fact, are dependent on him for everything. But because of his great love for us, he did this. And he is not ashamed to call us brothers. We give thanks. And like the shepherds, we want to praise and glorify you for what we have seen and heard. And proclaim to the world, Jesus has come into the world, and one day Jesus will return. I thank you that we can meet together on this Christmas Sunday. I ask your blessing on our time after the service. We eat together, talk together, have fellowship, guide our conversations. May you be exalted in all that we do. I pray this in Jesus' name. The name of your Son who came into the world and who will one day return. Amen.